0: Our text this morning begins in 2 Samuel chapter 8, 2 Samuel 8, and um, if you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 436, page 436, although the words to what I'll be reading will also be on the screen. This is the way the text begins. It says, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, verse 2. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. Moreover, David defeated the king of Zobah. He captured 1,000 of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but 100 of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help the king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. And let me just pause for a moment here and ask you a question. Does all of that bother you? Are you troubled that David makes these Moabite captives lay down on the ground lengthwise and then two out of three of them he slaughters? Or that David and his army killed 22,000 enemy soldiers to take land they believed God had given them, land that had been previously occupied by others? I was uh, uh, probably in my 30s one time. I was talking with a friend of mine and I said something about how when I was a child some of these stories in the Old Testament bothered me. And he said, what do you mean when you were a child? And I realized they still sometimes bother me. One of the most frequent questions I get from skeptics is, why is God so angry? Uh, Many today will tell you that they like Jesus. They love his message of unconditional love, but they're not so sure about God, especially the Old Testament God of vengeance and justice, a God that sanctions violence. So what do we do with these descriptions of David's military campaigns? Now, there are several issues here, and we could talk literally for hours about this, and I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I want to give you a little bit of a perspective. It's one that requires us to get into the mindset of the ancient world, and that's not always easy to do. Let me just tell you that we know from history, not just from what we have in the Bible, but also from other extra-biblical sources, that um, the surrounding nations did things that God had told the Israelites not to do. So they practiced incest, um, infanticide, child sacrifice. There was injustice to the poor and to immigrants. There was temple prostitution, occult practices. Many of these nations were violent, not just to those who were outsiders, but also insiders. And that's why God wanted his people to keep a safe distance from them out of the fear of corruption, and it was a legitimate fear. But why, many ask, does God always seem so angry? Now, it's a criticism that I'll argue isn't entirely fair. First, the Jewish people believed that God was utterly good. They believed in his steadfast love, as we've sung about this morning, his compassion, his deliverance, his holiness. But they also believed in something else, and that is the justice of God. And it's the justice part that leads some to describe God as angry. But we need to pay attention to why it is that God at times seems angry. Now, we'll all agree that anger is not a healthy emotion generally it's unhealthy there are times though when anger is fully justified when you see a vulnerable person mistreated or abused a child abused a woman objectified a grown man discriminated against based on the color of his skin you get angry and appropriately so and so does god yes jesus is gentle meek and mild but he's also radically committed to justice for all the anger of God springs from his love and concern, not pride and a desire to control. He isn't angry, because, uh, he gets angry because he cares. As one scholar said, God isn't wrathful in spite of his love, he's wrathful because of his love. And there's a balance here between mercy and justice. It's a, it's a balance that only God gets perfectly. But both are part of God's character. And while we're more attracted to the God of love, we equally need a God of justice. <clears throat> That's why there isn't an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, but rather one God of mercy and justice. By the way, that's also why we want our leaders to fight for justice, to stand up against injustice, to stand up for righteousness, not for unrighteousness, to punish those who mistreat the poor, the weak and the vulnerable, and so did those in David's day. But that's only part of the story. If we had more time, we could look into more of the details here. For one, many of the battles that David fought were defensive. At times, there were offers of proposals of peace, only engaging in war when those offers were refused. In addition, scholars point out that we often get tripped up by the rhetoric of the ancient world. Some of what we read they tell us is hyperbolic. In other words, was every man, woman, and child killed? Well, in some cases it says so, and then immediately after, almost just a few verses later, we'll find that many were still alive. It's the rhetorical equivalent of saying that the twins crushed the White Sox 10 to 3. Were any White Sox crushed? Well, not literally. It just means that the twins won the game. The big picture here is that God was establishing the people of Israel in the land. This was something that had been promised them going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God told Abraham he was going to build out of him a great nation. But he added something to that. He said, through you I will bless all people on earth. And that theme repeats itself continually all the way into the time of the prophets, all the way through the book of Revelation, which tells us that God, the people of God, are not to be a monoculture, but a multi-ethnic mosaic made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. One of the reasons that I trust the Bible may at first sound counterintuitive, but it's because not in spite of the messy stories that we find in the Bible. Some say that the stories of the Bible have been shaped in such a way to make God look good and to make the Bible's heroes look good, but it's not true. The biblical authors don't try to clean up the untidy bits. Now, some of the stories are descriptive. It doesn't mean that the narrator is approving of what's happening. He's merely describing, he or she is merely describing what's happened. The people we see in the Bible are real people. We see their virtues, and we see their vices. With 2020 hindsight, it's easy to spot the blind spots. But the truth is, in our culture, in our day, and even as individuals, we have our own blind spots as well. One of the myths of our age is the idea of moral progress. The idea that we are only now on the right side of history. In some ways, we are more enlightened than past generations. For example, we no longer have children working long hours in factories. We have child labor laws, and we should. We don't throw the poor in debtor's prison, giving them no opportunity ever to work off their debt. But at least by biblical values, we have some things wrong. We've failed to protect the lives of the unborn. We have a legacy of capital punishment that is unequally applied and occasionally applied in error. We've failed to adequately care for refugees around the world. In this country, we have a legacy of racism that we once thought we'd be looking at in the rearview mirror, and unfortunately, it just continues. But God's still at work today. We won't get it fully right, but if we listen to him, he'll help us grow in awareness and inspire us to obedience. Now, the rest of chapter 8 tells how David consolidates Israelite territory. When he came to power, the surrounding nations were eager to take advantage of any weakness. And so they tried, but they failed. And twice in the text, we're told in verses 6 and 14, we're told that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. What the narrator is telling us here is that, humanly speaking, David should not have succeeded, that his success was not due to his brilliance, but to God. And then at the end of the chapter, in verses 15 to 18, the narrator tells us two details about David as a leader. Let me start with the second of the two, verses 16 to 18, where it tells us that he paid attention to the management, administration, and bureaucratic needs of the nation. Now, we're often dismissive of bureaucracy. But if we didn't have able administrators running our companies, churches, communities, cities, and nation, we'd have chaos. And David paid attention to the details. The second thing we're told in verse 15 is that he did what was just and right for all his people. So in addition to military leadership and administrative leadership, David made certain that justice was done for all the people. One of the things we find in the Old Testament is the various descriptions of what a good leader is and two of the most important qualities were righteousness and justice they're at the core of all great leadership now that's chapter eight in chapter nine the the narrator takes a break from his uh, description of David as a leader and tells a story that on the surface doesn't seem very important it doesn't seem to have at least importance geopolitically It's a story about the disabled son of one of David's best friends, Jonathan. And the chapter opens with a question. It says, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. So David had him brought to him. His name, we'll find out in just a moment, is Mephibosheth. It's hard to say. I'll try to do it. Um, He was five when his father Jonathan and grandfather Saul were killed in a battle with the Philistines, a battle that went horribly wrong. And the carnage didn't stop with the end of the battle. The Philistines had a scorched earth policy and searched immediately for anyone connected to the royal family. And it wasn't just the the Philistines, Um, David, or Saul's household, all of those in Saul's household were fearful of David, because during Saul's lifetime, he harassed David, and he sought to kill him, and so they were fearful that David himself would be one who would come and eliminate them. So they wondered, what's to prevent him from coming after us? And so they fled both from the Philistines and from David. Now years later, all those who were once loyal to Saul are still living in fear, they're living in hiding. Most afraid is this young man named Mephibosheth. He was five years old, I mentioned, when the news came of the battlefield disaster. Everyone in the family, including the servants, ran, and his nanny grabbed him. She tripped, she fell, and both his ankles were broken. And the day before orthopedic surgeons, they didn't heal properly, and he was lame. He didn't walk for the rest of his life. Saul's loyal servants hid this boy so well that few knew he existed. So he grew up in obscurity without the trappings of power or the wealth that had once been his family's. How much he knew, we aren't certain. But he certainly wasn't responsible for anything that either his grandfather or others had done. He was too young. And now he was disabled and to do anything about it, too disabled to do anything about it. His nanny and the other servants may have told him about the past glories of his grandfather and his father. Maybe they told him that he deserved much more than he had. It's possible he grew up believing he was a victim and that David was not only to be feared, but responsible for his situation. If it hadn't been for the fear of David and the Philistines, this young boy might not have been crippled. And if that last battle had not gone badly, he might right then have been living in the palace looking forward to his own day on the throne. Years now have gone by. He's not a boy anymore. He's a young man. He still can't walk. He knows he never will. And living in seclusion, he has little hope of anything other than an insecure obscurity. He knows that if just one of a handful of people knows his identity and decides to turn on him, he's a dead man. It's a miserable way to live. And it could be that he blamed it all on David. And then it happens, his greatest fear. Strangers arrive in a small town in this out-of-the-way village and start asking questions. And the men... Mephibosheth learns had been sent from David. The worst news he could have imagined is exactly happened. He had to have assumed that after all these years that David had decided to tidy things up, to take care of a few loose ends, to search high and low for any remaining descendants of Saul and to eliminate any challengers to the throne. Any grandson of Saul's could have, at least in David's mind, been a threat. So the gig's up. He knows he's doomed. Verse 6, it says... When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore you to all the land that belonged to your father Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant? that you should notice a dead dog like me. Now, why did he describe himself as a dead dog? Well, he was afraid. He expected the worst. And he called himself a dead dog. We don't know exactly why he used that term. It must have been an idiom. Dog, perhaps, because he was a disabled person. Others had looked down upon him, and perhaps he even had a low view of himself. And the dead part was because perhaps he thought he was just about to lose his life. And then David spoke, and the first word that he spoke was his name, and that's significant. Using someone's name is a sign of dignity, a symbol of dignity. David sees him as a person, treating him with honor and love and respect. But Mephibosheth, even then, can't see it that way. His face is clearly troubled. And so seeing the fear on his face, David says, don't be afraid. This young boy or this young man couldn't believe what he was hearing, but there was more. Because David continued, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. This was a reversal of fortunes that he could never have imagined or dreamed. From believing his life would be over, David welcomes him into his home as a member of the family, restores his family property. It was more than he could handle. Now, I should say, in addition to the fact that Mephibosheth was afraid, David is also here taking a great risk. Could this generous gesture backfire? Could there be a day down the road when some decide to throw a coup um, and try to see David removed and use Mephibosheth as their new king? Perhaps. But David believed it was a risk worth taking. It was, he felt strongly, something he needed to do, even if others felt it was foolish. What Mephibosheth didn't know yet was that David was a different sort of king from the ones that he had been exposed to or heard about before. His grandfather Saul had been a suspicious and paranoid man. He was jealous, quick to take offense. He saw a conspiracy under every rock and failed to see the good in others. He was impulsive and narcissistic, and David was none of these things. That's why the narrator said that David did what was just and right for all the people. No one would have said that of Saul. David's kindness, his loyalty, and love were based on a commitment that Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, and David had made to one another decades earlier. It was a promise these two men made in 1 Samuel chapter 20, not just for this life, but beyond. A promise to show kindness to their descendants forever. Now here's David, face to face with Jonathan's son, fulfilling the vow of love and loyalty and commitment that he promised many years before. So justice, fairness, and now love are the qualities that characterize David and his reign is king. Not perfectly as we'll see in a couple of weeks but in ways totally foreign to the notion of kingship in that day. Now that's the story, the story this narrator tells but what is the implications for us? How can we live this out? This kindness and this loyalty and love? You know we're in an age where we struggle with commitment, with keeping promises so we abandon friendships and marriages and churches and jobs when they no longer serve our purposes. We'll do things for others, but only on the condition that either they will do something now or in the future for us. But David and Jonathan made a covenant, a commitment, a promise to serve one another and their descendants, even when it might be inconvenient or dangerous, because of their love for each other. With all that David had suffered at the hands of Saul, it would have been understandable if he had decided to conveniently forget this promise he had made. David and Jonathan made this commitment to each other without regard to what might be the future circumstances they'd find themselves in. It wasn't about mood or personal convenience. It was a commitment they made that one day they would perhaps have to make a sacrifice for one or the other. And yet they made this commitment and they kept it, even though forgetting it might have been more convenient. It's the kind of commitment, for example, that a man and a woman make to one another when they exchange vows. I take you. From this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish until death do us part. Now, this is really a very quiet scene in David's life. Very few people even know about it. If the narrator didn't record it, we would not have heard about it. And in some ways, it's strange we're even told of it because David's search for Jonathan's son, this encounter and this extension of kindness to this very frightened man had no implications, national implications or geopolitical implications at all it makes one wonder why this narrator chose to include the story, to preserve it and see it passed on to us. Why? I think because he or she, whoever put this down, wants us to know something of David's essential character. Yes, David is not perfect. Again, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about his most grievous error. He made some spectacular blunders, but at this point, when his power and authority were at their greatest, he made a decision to show sacrificial love to an otherwise insignificant man. It's a defining moment, a, mer- a moment this narrator believes must be preserved. And this is not emotional greeting card sort of love. Instead, it springs out of an enduring commitment to show kindness to someone who can never repay him. Emotions are fine. David may well have had come to have an emotional connection to his, son's, uh, his best friend's son. But his love here is based on responsibility and kept promises. Loyal love is a way that looks out for the good of others, brings out the best in one another, looks out for those typically left behind the poor, the disabled, the hurting, even the dysfunctional. This story is told because the narrator wants us to see David's loyalty to his vow of friendship made many years earlier. He would object if we viewed this story through cynical eyes. He tells us nothing about Mephibosheth's motives, only David's. Mephibosheth's fear is understandable. But the narrator wants us to know that he has nothing to fear. He stresses that David is simply showing kindness to Saul and his family and loyalty to Jonathan. David is truly a man of his words. Now here's a question. Did this work out? Did Mephibosheth remain faithful? In chapters 16 and 19, we get some ambiguous hints that maybe things weren't perfect. Maybe there may have been a problem or two. But here the narrator doesn't seem particularly concerned about how it works out. To him, David's actions are admirable because they show us something of his character, not because it worked. Humanly speaking, David has many more important matters to tend to, but he shows love to Mephibosheth that is generous and extravagant. Now, if you know the rest of the Christian story, you can't help but be reminded of another king, one of David's descendants, King Jesus, who showed even greater love for us. In giving up the privileges of heaven to descend and to be one of us, to live the life that we have tried but failed to live, but he lived it perfectly, to die a death that we deserved in order that we might be reconciled to God. Why? Because of his kindness, his loyalty, and his love, his extravagant and unmerited grace for each and every one of us. The challenge for each one of us today, myself included, is to think of those around us to whom we have made commitments or can make commitments to show this kind of kindness, loyalty, and love. It may be a commitment you've made years before but have failed to fulfill. Fulfill it now. For some of you, this may be hard to recommit to a difficult marriage, fulfilling a value made years before but have been tempted to abandon. It may be to give a bit more at work, even in a difficult work environment because you have the responsibility to be a good employee. It may be to love a friend who may be difficult to love or even a parent, knowing that God has asked you to be loyal to commitments that have been made before, years before. David wasn't perfect and neither are we, but he did fulfill this vow to his friend Jonathan and perhaps we too can fulfill our vows and show loyalty to those God has put in our lives. Let us pray. Father, this is a tender story, a really moving story about kindness and love showed to someone who really had no hope without what David did. Father, may we live out this kind of loyalty and love and faithfulness to others, to those that we've made commitments to, to those you have placed in our lives. We do so, though, knowing that you have ultimately, in your son Jesus, showed us this kind of loyalty and love and commitment when we least deserved it. Father, I pray that we would appreciate that, that we would understand that. And I pray that if there are any here today who have not yet responded to the love of Jesus given us and what he did for us on the cross, that we would, that we would respond and embrace the relationship with God that is made possible through him. We pray this in Jesus' name.